Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hello. Thank you for coming. Um, you look great. You're a very attractive audience. You have great hair. Um, so, yes, I'm just a warm-up act for Rachel. This is, this is Rachel's night. Many of you know Rachel and love Rachel. She's a wonderful person. And her book is out, so we're celebrating that. Um, and I'm going to be kind of the warm-up act. So how this is going to work, I'm going to read for a little bit from Zeke Yoder, and then I'm going to introduce Rachel, and she'll come up and, and read a little bit. And then we're going to have a conversation afterwards where we hope that you'll have questions and talk to us about things, and we'll talk to each other um, because it's, you know, it's very lonely up here, and we like to break the fourth wall and you know share our loneliness with with you guys. Um, so we hope you'll ask us questions. Um, so it's great to, before I begin, it's really great to be at Skylight. This is like one of the best bookstores in all the world. It's one of my favorite bookstores in all the world. And we don't ever want it to go away, so you should support it. How do you support a bookstore? Buy books, yes. <laughs> buy books. So buy books. There's lots of them everywhere. <laughs> buy some books while you're here. Um, Okay, so I'm going to read, uh, so as, so this is, this is, this is my Amish sci-fi book, the first in the Amish terror series, it's called Zekiotr versus the Singularity. It's kind of different from my usual thing, um, but what it is, it's an Amish sci-fi book, which I guess is pretty self-explanatory. So the hero of this book is, is Zeke Yoder, who's, he's a 14-year-old um, Amish Amish boy, um, and I'm going to read a short section near the beginning. So he lives near Kelowna, Iowa. Um, he, his grandmother, this takes place like maybe 30 years in the future, or something like that. Uh, his grandmother has just been bitten by a GMR, a genetically modified rat. So he has to, he, his cyborg buddy Gonzalo takes him on his motorbike to Marshalltown, Iowa, where he has to get the antidote from this um, from the security guard at a meat warehouse. Um, Gonzalo can't go into Marshalltown for complicated reasons in his past, uh, but he gives him a ride there. They have to use this new technology sort of to get there on the way, so uh, which causes hallucinations. So Zeke is still sort of tripping a little bit when this happens. I mean, he's, he's not quite peaking anymore, but he's a little bit sort of... Okay, anything else you need to know? Um, no, so I'm going to read that as soon as I find my place. Um, okay. okay, so they're in Marshalltown. Um, uh, anyway, said Gonzalo, you'd better go. Uh, what is the guard's name? asked Zeke. He goes by Efron, said Gonzalo. Efron, he's a real freak. He used the word freak in a way that made it seem affectionate. 
He has this old doll, Gonzalo said, some 20th century thing. You stick your hand in it and you make it talk. It looks like the doll's talking, but it's really him. It's called ventriloquism. He's totally off into it, and he treats the doll like it's a real person. And I swear, sometimes you forget. You forget that it's all in this guy's wigged-out brain. As Zeke checked his route and headed into the city, he wondered what the difference was between the guard's wigged-out brain and his own. His perceptions of reality were still intense, and separated from his friend, a vague darkness and menace crept into his vision. He passed through an empty, desolate zone of abandoned retail buildings, then crossed over a dried-up creek and took a bridge across a vast yard of railroad tracks. Strange graffiti messages were scrawled on the sides of abandoned buildings. Nihil rising, it said. There was a cartoon of a robot being beheaded. Deface the future, it said. Don't eat death, it said. Hugs for puppies, it said. He didn't glimpse a single other creature until he approached the old center of town. On Main Street, the disease of biological life was flowering in all its rancid glory. Zeke could feel the pain of the dreaming junkies like it was moving into his belly. They were picking scabs. It was like the sun had never shined in this town, like the acids of the industrial pollution were melting his liver, and the junkies were sweating. A foul fog emerged from their orifices. Something flopped past his face, swooped up behind him, and then landed on his shoulder. He plucked it off. There was a flexi-screen with a long message on it. The flexi-screen chirped. Zeke had seen flexi-screens before, but never one that seemed so alive. If you've got to connect, tell them I'm looking for a computer. Tell your connect I'm looking for that computer that comes with a manual the computer girls use to change their eye color. It would do anything, and it came with a manual. It had movie tubes, so you can watch free movies. Girls use it to time travel. It's like a hologram computer. It can get anything in the world done. You might want to be alone when you read this. Make sure you are. Be extra sure. Zeke looked around. Nobody seemed to be looking at him except maybe some creature in a gas mask that was leaning against the wall just up ahead. It was impossible to tell. Maybe the creature was staring right at him. Maybe the creature was the one who sent the message. Zeke nodded in its direction. It didn't nod back. I'm looking for someone to make me that computer, the computer I use to enter my goals, the computer that can hack into government, a computer only I can use, the cool one everyone is talking about, the government computer, the hacker thing, the off-grid computer, the girl computer, the eye color changer, the computer that can get anything done, the computer that makes all possible. I know someone has one I can buy. I hear the computers are 2,000 or less. The flexi screen chirped again. Um, I don't have a computer, said Zeke, but I can ask Gonzalo. The flexi-screen chirped and flew away. It flew past the creature in the gas mask and then kept going until it was out of sight. Zeke kept walking. Crumbling brick buildings that offered weekly rooms and substance abuse services boarded up businesses except for one shop advertising Mega Meat Monday. The tallest building in town, the Tallcorn Building, was empty but lit up like a hologram, advertising itself as Food Co. headquarters. Zeke had the strange impression of someone beside him all the time now, walking next to him. But nobody was there, nobody was anywhere. He turned onto 10th Avenue toward the meat warehouse. Okay. The security guard sat with his wooden doll in a shack outside the warehouse. Efron, said Zeke. That's me. You want whisper dolls? No, nothing like that, said Zeke. Gonzalo sent me. Gonzalo, eh? How is that little prick? He's good. 
I like the things he can do with those appendages, said Efron. State of the art. Zeke never really knew what to say to the English, so he got right to the point. I need medicine. My grandmother was bit by a GMR. GMR, eh, said Efren. I can do that. I have the culture from the wound and a sample of her blood. Good boy. Whip that up for you in a jiffy. Cost you 500 plus there's something I could use your help with. The security guard waved him inside. The warehouse was enormous and gray, complicated and windowless. The entrance gave to a small room with carpet, overly bright lights, one chair, and a potted plant. The guard sat in the chair, and so Zeke plopped down on the floor. The doll seemed to be napping. The guard held out his hand and made a gimme-gimme motion with his fingers. Zeke handed the cash over, and while the guard sat there counting it, Zeke stood up, suddenly anxious to move. The doll's eyes flipped open. Come with me, the guard said. They entered a concrete tunnel that stank of flesh, a vast cold space of hanging carcasses, went through a door into a room of live animals in cages. Zeke recognized the plump, headless turkeys throbbing and feeding through tubes. They entered another long refrigerated hallway, their body space constrained on either side by hanging ovals of meat ribbed with luminous fat. The fat ribbons were like hex signs, perfectly symmetrical geometries. The security guard opened a thick plasticky door. They entered a narrower, warmer hallway lit only by a flickering overhead. They entered a cavernous courtyard with a ceiling so high it felt like they were in a darker-than-night outside world. On his right were crates stacked high, the smell of something acrid, living, and blind. To Zeke's left, a picket fence around a tiny pink cottage. Clipped grassy plant life grew between the fence and the cottage. A face in the dark window startled him. The little girl waved. There was no pain in the window. Want a liver jelly, she asked. The girl handed him a little gray candy through the window, some blend of synthetic sugars and proteins shaped like a teddy bear. There was something familiar about the girl, like he'd seen her face in a dream. Zeke thought that maybe there were many worlds hidden behind the surface of the world he thought that he knew, but that in every world the faces might be the same, the same souls trapped in every level of hell. His thoughts were still strange to him, like they were someone else's thoughts. Gonzalo's? He couldn't know. Now they walked into a carpeted hallway, with not too many bloodstains. The guard opened a door into a warm closet-like room with medical equipment. He took the samples from Zeke while the dummy seemed to be watching him. The guard looked at the samples through a microscope and then fed them into a machine that hummed and whirled the tissues and blood around like a carnival ride. You're human, huh, said the guard, 100%. I'm Amish, said Zeke. Medicine's going to change your granny, said Efren. The rat toxin's already changed her, and then the antivenom, it won't change her back exactly. It'll change her in a different way. Change her how? Hard to say, he said. Everybody's different. Every GMR bite is different. But she'll have some other species going on with her personhood, that's for sure. But is there no other way, asked Zeke. It's the only antivenom there is, said the guard, made by the same people who made the rats. You know who made the rats, asked Zeke. Everybody knows who made the rats, said the guard. It's on the grid screen all the time. Absolute genomics. You know that ad for the family of the future? I'm off the grid, said Zeke. The guard shrugged. Your granny can be dead or she can mean something different, he said. Those are the choices. Zeke thought he should give her the choice, but he knew she wasn't in her right mind. He didn't want to let her choose to die. Are you human, he asked the guard. The guard laughed. 
I couldn't work here if I was human, he said. I mean, legally, intellectually, psychologically, spiritually, no way could I do it. This place, this work, the meat, the new meat, it's not for humans. You've got to lose some of your disgust, some of your compassion. Humans have been doing that forever, said Zeke, losing their disgust and their compassion. What's the difference? Chemistry, said the guard. It's a brainwave thing. The brainless meat, growing, squirming, blind, and delicious. It gives off a kind of dark radiance, an odor. In other eras, visionaries and poets would have seen this place in their dreams. He turned back to his machines, engrossed in the process of manufacturing the medicine. The dolls seemed to be staring at Zeke. What's with the suspenders? the doll asked. You're wearing them too, said Zeke. My point exactly, said the doll. You're crowding me here. You're reducing the luster of my idiosyncratic style. The guard's lips didn't move at all. He didn't even seem to be paying attention to the conversation. My name's Merle, said the doll. He extended his little block of a hand. Pleased to meet you, said Zeke. Are you Ephron's friend? I loathe Ephron, said Merle. He's always hanging around, won't just let me be. Kind of needy, don't you think? But you're attached to him, said Zeke. But you're attached to him, said Zeke. I could do without him, said Merle. I just need a motor and I'm out of here. Don't you need a brain, he asked. Consciousness is cheap, said Merle. Brains are a dime a dozen. Soup up one of those monkey brains we grow in the vats in the basement with some circuitry. Connect me to the data vapor and I'm good to go. Merle wiggled and made a little gesture that seemed to be a dance, illustrating his willingness to move on. There are monkey brains in the basement, asked Zeke. An excellent source of protein, said Merle, and hardly ever contaminated with pathogens for post-humans. Now your type, that's different. Better stay away from the primate delicacies. My type, said Zeke. The noble savage, said Merle. The rustic, the primitive, the homo sapien. People are into that now, I guess. All the more evolved life forms are attracted to your folksy ways. Pepperidge Farms remembers. Pepperidge Farms? Slap an old-fashioned human mother on the package of the nanofiber self-regulating cake mix and they'll slop it up like brainless pig mouths, said Merle. Okay, said Ephron, standing back from the machine. It's all set. Give it a half hour. Come on, kid. Follow me. Ephron slid through a narrow door hidden behind some metal shelves into a hallway so narrow that Zeke had to turn sideways to move down it, with Merle's wooden bubble eyes staring right at him, then out the other end into a dim room with padded floors and no windows. Hanging on the wall were two pairs of padded gloves, one big enough for a man, the other tiny. I'm going to beat your ass today, Ephron, said Merle. I hope you're ready. I'm shaking my boots, said Ephron. Can't you feel my terror? He turned to Zeke. We're going to box, but we need your help. He showed Zeke how to slip his hand up inside the wooden puppet. The mechanism worked in such a way that he only needed to wiggle one finger for the doll to thrust and jab its little fists the way the security guard wanted. Step back, you pathetic meat peddler, cried the doll, and punched the guard in the face. The guard stepped back for a moment and then hit the doll square in the jaw. The pressure vibrated up and down Zeke's arm. I won't do this, Zeke protested. I don't believe in violence. The Amish are pacifists. Can't do it. This isn't violence, you ninny, said Merle. It's sport. It's fun and games. 
Plus, you don't have a choice, said Ephron. This is part of the cost of your grandmother's medicine. I believe I explained that. Zeke wiggled his finger, and the doll smacked Ephron in the face again. A little drip of blood trickled down from his nose. Maybe it wasn't a sin to hurt somebody if they wanted to be hurt. What he found most amazing was the intricate intricate ventriloquism through which he could clearly distinguish the guard's panting and moans of pain from the doll's panting and moans of pain in a pitched rhythm that seemed sometimes to overlap as they punched each other over and over again. Okay, so that's where I'm going to end. Thank you. Um, So Rachel's going to read next. Let me tell you about Rachel. Okay, so Rachel just moved to L.A. not that long ago. I I also just moved to Southern California, San Diego, not that long ago. We knew each other in San Francisco, the horrible cold city to the north, um, which we're all fleeing as rapidly as we can. Um, But she was a student in the MFA program. I was her teacher in the MFA program at the University of San Francisco. She was my student. This book, an early version of this book, was her thesis, um, which I worked with her on. So I like to take credit for Rachel. Um, (laughs) If you like her book, you can come up and thank me for it afterwards. Uh, That would be lovely. Um, Rachel. Rachel. She's... uh, She's from Pennsylvania. She grew up in Philadelphia. She lived in Pittsburgh for a while. Then she came to San Francisco. And now she is here among you in Los Angeles. Um, She received a Lighthouse Works Fellowship uh, on Fisher Island, New York in 2015. Uh, She uh, is hard at work on another novel that involves poetry, plutonium, and Mars, and also working on some poetry. Um, I'd like to read, as my final bit of this introduction, I'd like to read, I got to blurb her book, which is always a lot of fun. Um, And the short version of the blurb is on the book itself. But I wanted to read the long version. (laughs) The longer version. which goes like this. I'm sorry, I have too many (laughs) scrappy pieces of paper up here. Okay. This gorgeous little terror of a book is ferocious in its desire to tear down walls and passionate in its desire to take a look around at at what remains once the structure has been demolished. This is what's real and what's fiction, the continual loop of violence and representation, the constantly disappearing moment and the future that never arrives. The fifth wall crackles with braininess and sex. It's hallucinatory and interactive and funny and sad, and it has something incandescent to show you. Careful, you might get scorched. Come, take a look. Rachel? Thanks so much, Stephen. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, Stephen's right. You're really pretty, so I'm going to take a picture. Um, Yay! Stephen's actually the reason why I moved to California, actually. Um, We had a phone conversation in an interview for USF. Can you all hear me? 
and I loved him so much I was like that's it moving so love you Stephen <laughs> um, and thanks for Skylight Books for having me this bookstore is literally the best bookstore in uh, LA when I first moved here Stephen was like the first stop is Skylight Books they have three copies of Cyclonopedia which is an amazing book that no other bookstore has ever had that I've seen at least um so I'm going to read a short section on page 49 of the book if you people like to follow along. I know I'm one of those people. Um, what you need to know is kind of the premise of the book. Right, right before the book starts, this event happens, and the event is Sheila, who's the protagonist of the book. She's a conceptual artist who is living in New York, and she has this urge to return to her childhood home in Berkeley, um, in the Bay Area, and um, visit her estranged mother. And uh, she hasn't seen her mother in a couple years, but um, she ends up visiting her mother on a surprise and um, ends up witnessing her mother's suicide at the exact moment when she walks in the door, this very coincidental uh, moment. Um, so the way that she, a conceptual artist, deals with this is she decides to literally take apart her childhood home and film it. And the film feed goes to her MacBook computer, um, which she ends up watching for about a week and a half. The other things you need to know are the character Jesse is the contractor of the whole uh, deconstruction, who she begins a fling with. And um, Mal, or Mallory, is her roommate in San Francisco, who she ends up moving back in with. And I reference this thing called the Drog, which is kind of a drone robot dog, which is an installation in this exhibit that she's helping to put on at the SF MoMA where she works. And the installation is called The Last, or the show is called The Last Art, which is about technology as the end of art. Okay. At home, I check the live deconstruction cam and watch Jesse pulling drywall with two shirtless, perspiring Mexican men. We've planned another rendezvous for later this evening. I'll bring over a fancy pizza from Mal's restaurant, and he'll supply the beer. With a couple hours of daylight left, I decide to take a short walk to the bustling part of the mission to the restaurant to have an early drink at the bar. The air outside is cool and brisk, but tolerable without a jacket. Clouds move swiftly above buildings, the sun appearing and disappearing like lightning, a false threat of rain. I arrive just around five, just as they're opening up. Inside, Mal's behind the counter, pressing her uterus against the pizza warmer. She spots me out of the corner of her eye. Industrial heating pad, she smirks. I sit down and she pours me an oversized glass of Barbera. The wine tastes thick, fruity, and delicious. She sucks on an olive, looking bored. I tell her about the drug and the last art exhibit, how everyone's talking about it being the most controversial show the museum's ever hosted. <clears throat> Mal said she'd seen an article for it in the Chronicle just last week. She'd had a nightmare that evening about Dolly the sheep. Dolly hadn't been a sheep at all, but a costume that her aunt pulled off during a dinner party. The dinner had then gone on as usual dinners go. She had no idea what it meant. I hadn't been remembering my dreams for years, but they started returning right after the suicide. They began as a flashback of the shocking moment when I opened the door. The gun would go off, she'd fall to the floor, and then the bike would fall on top of me and I'd wake up. 
but recently they've begun to shift. Each time the scenario twists, time shifts, and my past memories seem to mingle with the event to create a whole new scene altogether. As the wine begins to set in, I feel my body altering to a space of slightly more detachment. I smile, feeling hot blood flowing through my veins. Mal rushes from the kitchen and serves a large steaming pizza to a table of two. She walks back over to the bar. Check this out. She thrusts her iPhone in my face and I examine the brightly lit screen. The becoming of human, I read out loud. Unlike all other images or fakes, runs via a culture of total control. This strange desire, marooned in the abysmal darkness of the city. I am nothing. You are nothing. This is something we understand. This is our only armor. I look up from the screen. The oracle's having a good day. Mal shrugs and quickly slips the phone back into her pocket. For the past five or six months, Mal's been receiving unsourced text messages from the same phone number, which we've named the Oracle. They arrive erratically, often skipping days or weeks, in paragraph-long stanzas brimming with ontological desperation, never demanding a response, as if calling out from a void of electric currents, of sonic depths. They seem to at once predict the future, indicate the present, and symbolize the past. She's begun to trust in them, Messages that seem to come from no one and are written to no one, but are, despite intention, for her. I'd googled the number, a Manhattan area code. She once tried to call it, but it just rang and rang. She pours me a second glass of wine, this time a Chianti. It's like I can't remember my life before the Oracle, she says. You can't imagine living without him, I say. Or her, she says. Or her, I repeat. Or it. Who says it has to be human? A man walks into the restaurant and takes a seat at the bar beside me. Mal smiles and hands him a menu. She pours iced water into his glass and then curses under her breath. She keeps forgetting she's not supposed to serve water anymore unless the customer asks. And plus, she's already on thin ice due to the other week when she got written up for ranting to a customer about the degenerative qualities of consuming gluten. Obviously not the best selling point in a restaurant that makes all of its dough off of dough. The man sitting next to me turns to me and smiles. Mal runs to check on a table, aggressively waving their hands. Robert, the man announces, holding out his hand. I shake it, frowning. You look even more stunning in person, he says. I stare at him with great confusion. I have no idea who this man is. I look around for Mal, but she's cleaning up a spill at a table. What a trip getting here. He thumbs a laminated menu in a clockwise motion. Wire glasses frame his long, thin face. His short, dry hair, a dark brown speckled with gray. His other features are indistinguishable. <clears throat> I'm so glad I made it on time. On the way driving over, I almost ran into a deer. A deer, I'm telling you, but it was already dead. It was a heap in the middle of the street. I was coming down from a job in the peninsula. It was right near the turnoff on 280, just a big old heap. And it was pretty fresh, not too much blood or anything. And it was weird. Nobody else was around. No people walking, no cars. It's pretty rare, a deer in the city. I hadn't seen a deer in a long time. You know, I used to do a bit of taxidermy with my pops growing up, so I just decided, you know, why not just take it? Why don't I just hoist this baby into my trunk and put it in the walk-in cooler at work tomorrow morning? <laughs> the man looks at me and grins. I stare at him. There's a dead deer in your car. I know, how funny is that? He laughs and looks down at his menu. 
Kamal hurries to the bar looking exhausted. Fucking Alexa just called in sick. I'm so tired of this bullshit. I drain the last of my wine and slam the empty glass down in front of her. She glares at me. The dead deer man says he'll have what I'm having. She studies him and then looks at me. I give her the look. She pours us both a glass of Chianti and leaves the open bottle on the counter, rushing back towards a dinging bell from the kitchen. You know, taxidermy is a dying art form. You got these new age people all obsessed about the implications of hunting. I mean, don't get me wrong. These days, I ideally think you should either hunt to eat the meat or find the exotic creature dead. But there's little respect for the art of preservation that goes into really high quality taxidermy. There's something about experiencing the girth of an animal and its real flesh. You can feel its power. Sure, we have those nature planet shows. The places those cameras go, amazing stuff. The man laughs. But you can't feel a real presence from a TV show, you know? So what looks good on this menu, anyhow? My head feels dizzy. A throbbing develops in my temples. A woman approaches the bar wearing a long wool coat and dark red lipstick. She looks around aimlessly, then spots the man beside me. I'm so sorry, I'm late, she says. Excuse me? The man looks perplexed. He looks at me and then back at her. His eyes widen. Rebecca? he asks. The woman extends her hand. I drain the wine and leave immediately. The cold bay area air stings my face and neck. Pizza malfunction, I text Jesse on the curb. Need assistance, help. Meet at my place, he writes back, running late. Door should be open. I hop on the 19 Muni toward Petrero, a living, breathing mass. We climb on and we climb off. The bus stops and releases, consumes, moves forward, stops and releases, consumes us. The sounds of creaking plastic seats, rubbing nylon material, shuffling footsteps. A woman sitting beside me depicts a violent rape scenario in conversation with herself. A plastic bottle rolls up and down the aisles. A young man coughs brutally into his sleeve. Fucking dead deer in trunks. The wine surges through my bloodstream. Jessie's sweet old dog, Maddie, greets me at the door with an awkward wobble. Then she bangs her head against the wall. I feel like crying. Jessie's house is large and drafty, filled with mismatched furniture, tools, and dog hair. I wrung my fingers along the smooth granite kitchen counter lined with a gorgeous repurposed wooden trim. I pull out a Pacifico from his fridge and I sit on the sofa. I take off my shoes. I lay out on the sofa. I prop myself up with an elbow in a more attractive position. I wait. What kind of person leaves their door unlocked in this city, especially with this senior citizen? I gape at Maddie, who sniffs my foot repeatedly. Then she hobbles over to a floor cushion and smacks her body to the ground. Sounds emanate from the door. I stand up. Jesse walks in with a great energy. His grin exceeds the walls of the room. I fling myself at him. He boils pasta and cooks a homemade mushroom sauce that smells heavenly. As I pace around telling him about my day, the drug, the dead deer man, the crazy people on the bus, it's been just over 24 hours since the incident with the pickaxe, and already the whole world feels like it's shifted to some disproportionate degree, and I'm somehow in the center, spiraling, attracting destructive forces and energies orbiting around me like planets. He had an interesting experience today, too, he says. The reason he was late is because he stopped by Ikea on the way home to pick up some cheap bathroom mats for his sister. 
He was rushing through the store. It was about to close when it came upon a pregnant woman having a panic attack in the corner of the bathroom section. Apparently, she'd been trying to find the exit for hours, but the store kept leading her to different rooms. The poor woman couldn't escape. He left the mats and helped lead the shaking woman out of the store to her car, where he sat with her for a few minutes, making sure she was okay. She left her cell phone in the car, along with her emergency granola bar, which she inhaled while Jesse patted her back until she was ready to drive home. I tell him how IKEA uses a specific type of coercive architecture designed to force you through the entire building before you can exit, that there are a bunch of interesting essays written about it on JSTOR. He says it sounds like it's right up my alley. Later, after we fuck on the bench to the kitchen table, I lay awake buzzing in the arms of Jesse while he snores with the mysterious sounds of an old man. A calm collectedness washes over me, a sense of security. Asleep, Jesse is just a breathing body. All of his energy is contained in this one action, the pure, peaceful gesture of breath. His shin rests against my calf. My face nestles against his clavicle. Time slows down merely to the placement of bodies. Nothing else exists but the two of us. Thank you. That was lovely. Thank you. <laughs> um, so we want, I know you've all been thinking about smart questions to ask Rachel. <laughs> And you can keep thinking about that. Because um, we wanted to talk a little bit about sort of both of the books that we read from deal a lot with um, sort of technology, technology and society but in different ways. Um, we wanted to talk about some of those issues, see what you have to say. Um, so let me ask a question. Okay. Can I ask a question? Sure. I'll model the behavior you can be for you. One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm modeling the question asking behavior for you. Um, so. Um, Oh, one of the things that really struck me in the excerpt that you read is that business about IKEA, um, which I've only been to like twice in my life because it's such a weird carceral environment that it freaks me out and I mm-hmm. couldn't bear it. But um, <laughs> your description of it as coercive architecture seems like it's very... Um, that it applies not just to IKEA but to a lot of other sort of elements of, of the book that, that surround Sheila. And I'm curious how you sort of thought of... Sheila's relationship to coercive architecture or what that concept sort of means for you. Okay. (laughs) Um, So the fifth ball, in a sense, is can be looked at as a meditation on structures of many different sorts. You have physical structures, non-physical, invisible structures. You have, you know, houses, you have bodies, you have technology, you have the mind. Um, And IKEA kind of came up naturally, but when I really thought about it, it was like, you know, my experience of IKEA has been I go in for a pillow or a picture frame or something, you know, little, and three hours later I'm in the parking lot hysterically crying, like, about this lack that I have in my life, that I need, like, all of these rooms have these things that I feel like I need, but I can't just pick one of them, I need them all, and, like, what am I going to do with myself, like, what is my, what's happening, um, becomes this, like, existential crisis, and so I feel like for Sheila... She kind of has that going throughout her whole life. Um, 
all of these structures surrounding her are telling her what she wants and what she desires, but it isn't until this traumatic event happens that she starts to really figure out what it is that she wants and she starts to be an active participant in her own life. Um, yeah, it's inter- I, the idea that, that technology itself, that all this sort of things around us constitute a coercive architecture. Um, I, I think both of us sort of, we, we, we're both trying to sort of talk about technology in our books. And it, I, so I use the sort of Amish boy who's, who's coming, you know, who's a sort of 19th century person, right? So technology is, is all new for him. So it's a way to have a perspective that's sort of looking at it as if it's new and unusual and, and it's sort of outside of that. Whereas your characters are very much, very, very much sort of inside um, this world surrounded by all of this techn- this new technology and it's sort of determining their lives it's almost so that they can't see it, I guess. And I'm wondering how that worked for you. Did you feel like you were down there with them, <laughs> immersed in the technology? Um, yeah, yes. <laughs> um, I feel like Or how do you get the perspective to talk about it? Maybe that's sort of what I'm trying to ask. I think I've always had like a kind of cognitive dissonance with that where I have, you know, my experience of being inside of it, but I also have my experience of being outside of it. So, and I made her a conceptual artist so that she would have some kind of um, mindset and venue in which to really have um, like commentary on, on the on culture and what was going on around her and what influences her art. Why did you make her a conceptual artist instead of a writer? Is that I why? think talking about <laughs> art is much more interesting than talking about writing. <laughs> okay. I'll accept that. Um, do any of you have questions? Continue that train. Uh, okay. You're a conceptual artist. Okay. Um, so she asked, um, "I'm a conceptual artist and a writer, and how do the two kind of intertwine when working, when writing this book?" Um, I started out as a fine artist growing up. I was always in art classes, drawing, and I almost went to art school. And all my ideas were much more heady than I could actually. Uh, like manifest in objects and so I kind of ended up going I kind of did this brief like musical period and then that didn't work out and then I went to writing Um, and I feel like writing has kind of been the one um, medium that always challenges me and where I can explore these concepts um, without end I guess so I guess that's a general answer (laughs) (laughs) thoughts questions Yes, definitely. Um, I've done a lot of. So, am I influenced by dreams in my writing? Because I have a lot of dream scenes in the book, and um, yeah, I have a background with doing a lot of Jungian dream analysis, and I think dreams are a really wonderful way to um, get at very. Uh, deep creativity that's often not expressed in our daily lives and we can um, 
we often learn a lot about ourselves that we aren't able to manifest um, and they're kind of like lessons and the images don't really necessarily come from us they come from this kind of um, unknown and so the book also deals with that idea a lot too this like trying to communicate with the unknown like the oracle in that section I just read yes <laughs> so when you write does it ever feel like creating a dream or does it feel like creating a reality so when I write does it feel like creating a dream or creating a reality that's an interesting question <laughs> um, it feels more like an alternate reality that's happening on top of the real one. Like it's, it feels very true and that fiction is not exactly the events that have happened in my life, but they use a lot of the emotional reality in my life and then I give meaning to them in different circumstances. <laughs> Tell us about the title of the book, The Fifth Wall. What is The Fifth Wall? So the fifth wall is um, a play on the term the fourth wall, which is a theater term. I'm sure many of you know um, the invisible wall between the audience and the actors um, that often gets broken in experimental plays and films. Um, like right now. Like right now, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I kind of thought about the fifth wall as this next level of um, kind of the screen interface when we deal with technology. It's like no longer, there's no more just either audience or like participant and actor. It's now with social media and with this network society, we're watching ourselves on the screen. And so that's kind of the next, the next level. <laughs> Yes. What did I learn in the process of writing this? Um, I worked out over a very long period of time a lot of uh, <laughs> issues I was going with at the time. A lot of fears were uh, revealed. Yes. Um, so this an early draft of this was an MFA thesis, but how mm -hmm. long before that you, were you sort of like beginning to conceptualize this and realize that it might be a longer work? What was that moment like? Okay. Um, so the thesis was a novel length. It was actually longer um, at first, but the character of Sheila started developing all the way the question was from Josh. We actually went to undergrad together. It was, it started in Chuck Kinder's class. So in our senior year of um, of undergrad writing classes, like her character started developing, and then um, I wrote some kind of short chapters. But the the idea for the book really started in grad school. Yes. Um, I'm just curious what your thought process was behind the choice to have her walk in on her mom killing herself, and then there's like some trauma that comes up in relationship to the house, so, like the pickaxe and a couple things with the floorboards and stuff mm. that happen. So why did I choose to have that ex like the end event? The mother kill herself and then have her walk in exactly when it's happening, okay. and then there's some trauma from experiencing that. Yeah, so I, I chose to have this specific traumatic event. I really needed something 
<laughs> I needed uh, an event that would be so traumatic that it would cause her to to do this action. Um, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but so if hard because it was such an early decision. Need a good reason to do it. Yes. And also, like the idea of coincidence is a really big theme throughout the novel, um, especially with this interplay. If you're talking about like coercive architecture and structures. Um, it goes back to the idea of what ideas are we listening to? Are we listening to ideas from the outside or are we listening to these bodily calls? And she has this kind of like call from inside of her that she needs to go. And like that ends up being this coincidence. And so she begins to give meaning to this. And what happens when we start to give meaning to all of these events that happened in our lives? It kind of turns into a cinematic structure. Over here. I noticed that you dedicated the book for your parents, and then you start with a parent. I was just wondering what that is like for you now that it's out. Okay. So I dedicated the book to my parents. Um, My mom's still alive and well, so if that's what you're wondering. No. Yeah, I felt like my parents and I have a really complicated relationship and it was just so important for me to not to prove myself but to show it's just like I came from them and this is what I'm doing. It's kind of like the first gift I can give back. <laughs> Yes. Well, this isn't a question, but just uh, in theme with, uh, you said, cinematic structures. I'm like, hearing the power chore score to video drive. Like, oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that definitely is a compliment coming from me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would take that as a compliment coming from anyone. Um, I, uh, one of the things that struck me in the part that you read is also about uh, which also seems to be very much about the new technologies and so on and so forth is when the, the man mistakes her in the bar for somebody else and it seems like that's like she's better than what he's expecting but she can only be better than what he's expecting because she isn't the real person right she's not mm-hmm. she's not it and that seems very much about the sort of the sort of way that the technologies create fantasy or create the sort of desire for what isn't really what isn't real or what isn't possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to turn this into a question. Um, <laughs> uh, how does that work for Sheila? I mean, what, uh, there's a lot about fantasy and sort of mm-hmm. uh, fantasy and sexual, especially sexual fantasy and how that sort of works within this environment and milieu and society. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of permeates the whole book. So you have to read it to find out a lot about that. But um, <laughs> um, good answer. <laughs> but what I can say is, so her art is all about fantasy and projection. She um, it talks more about this in the book, but she creates these rooms and experiences based on projections of, um, like, like an example would be romance. She creates this room full of, that kind of would be like an IKEA room that would look like romance happened there but it's devoid of human or any sort of experience in there and so it um it lacks um it lacks the reality and the yeah there's no reality anywhere 
I have one more question, which is a, 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 a the taxidermy is another thing that stuck out in the section that you read. Um, and it reminds me of a, a book that I know has influenced you that's also influenced me a lot, this wonderful novel by Joy Williams, um, The Quick and the Dead, which has a lot about taxidermy in it. Um, it's the best book ever. It's, it's one of my favorite novels of all time. It's the best book ever. Um, it, it, and there's something about, I, I think Sheila says something about it makes a dead world look alive or something like that. But it, it, it's like embalming is one sort of, it, it's like one strategy of grief, you could say. You know, this is one way to think about what you do when somebody dies. But it's not Sheila's strategy at all. Sheila's strategy is sort of the center of the book and is very, very different from that. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit, bit about what is what is Sheila's strategy with dealing with grief and why in some sense yeah so she has the she likes to, to say the phrase a dead world made to look alive a lot um, it kind of becomes this overarching metaphor for technology as kind of copying nature and um, running the program alongside of it and then like with embalming is like making a body look alive and um yeah, I'm, I'm losing the question. Oh, with taxidermy. Well, I, <laughs> what I was asking is sort of like, how, how is that a process of dealing with grief? And what is that? Yeah. What's the sort mm-hmm. of, I mean, what is, that's not Sheila's way of dealing with grief. Her right. way of dealing with grief is destroying, destroying her, her home. childhood home and filming then it. And filming it, yeah. So in some sense, where does that come from or what is that about yeah. or how is that a it's kind of like where this, does it take her and maybe about, you don't want to give away too much yeah <laughs> I, I it's more like a Read meditation on documentation <laughs> and it's like we live in this world where we're constantly documenting life as it's happening and it's no longer just like proof of something in the past it's proof of things that are happening right now in the present and like that's how she's dealing with her grief is kind of trying to get rid of this traumatic moment by literally taking apart this object that holds all of these memories but she's filming that process of taking it apart so that she can kind of assert its realness and like what does it mean to assert realness by making a copy of it um i think that's a big question that we deal with in our daily lives all the time you're nodding your heads (laughs) (laughs) yes was the deer supposed to be or a parallel or a or um, a symbol of her mother I never actually thought about that, Catherine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's cool. Yes. Um, actually, that character is largely based off of this very interesting man I met on Fisher's Island who was the museum director um, who would literally pick up a roadkill and put them in his freezer. Um <laughs> So that's Yum. where the deer came from, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't pick up on it the first time I read the book, yeah. but then when you were reading it here, to me it just felt like, I wonder if Sheila is even picking up on the fact that he's expressing this relationship between a dead body mm. and does something with it where she had an experience with a dead body and then reacted mm. differently. And I just wondered if you thought about how Sheila is like, is she getting like, you know, under a wave by this guy, or is she just like kind of on a blip? Yeah, that's really interesting. I love that connection. <laughs> yes. Sort of building on that, 
this is all super heady. And is like the characters are so relatable and, and human. And so um, observation and then question observation, you manage to hold this super heady stuff um, and deliver it through these characters. And so now the question part is, um, how the hell do you do that? Like, when you're writing and, and these characters are coming through you, do they lead you in certain directions that are surprising or do you kind of put them in this situation where you kind of know the message and you know what you want to explore mm. and then let them play within that framework? So I think I try to do the latter, but what ends up happening is every time I write, I forget that characters take on a life of their lives of their own. And so they end up like, I don't think I even planned the Ikea part or the dead deer part. It kind of just came out because it was what was happening at the time, and it just made sense. But I do I do have a lot of firm structures, especially with ideas that I like to work with. And then, so it's kind of a little bit of both. I have a lot of notes. I have notebooks that just have, like, quotes and notes, and then I have them all open. And then I kind of work from that. I have a question. How do you work with dialogue when you come into that? When do you choose to switch between the dialogue, actual dialogue, yeah. and then internal monologue? Yeah, so how do I switch between dialogue and um, like internal monologue and narrative? That's more of like, I think, a natural kind of flow. It's more of how it sounds to me. Um, I don't usually plan... Often I'll hear the character speaking to me, and I'll write down like little... Jot, like notes about what they're saying and sometimes I'll add that in or a lot of times it's things I hear on the street I know some of the quotes in the book are like things I heard in San Francisco just walking around with people talking to themselves um, so it's kind of from all over yeah I was still thinking about that, that wall thing <laughs> I was thinking about that quickie scene in Kira uh, Lafu I think the dark movie like they're driving the car and he turns and talks to the screen. Yeah. But I was wondering if you had like a moment in writing it where you felt like there was a breach of what you were thinking about. Because like, I'm wondering like what it means to break the fifth wall. To break through the fifth wall, yeah. <laughs> Is there a way Is it possible? Like, I feel like that's like to... where my next book might be going. <laughs> yeah. What was there a moment in character where you like felt that, you know? That... Like where I was watching myself, kind of? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I feel like Sheila borrows a lot from my own life. Um, is that what you're asking? A little bit? No, I was just wondering more what it's like if the four walls, whatever, audience and theater. Yeah. If what you're saying is like technology and person. Well, yes. Yeah. I feel like we're, when we're watching ourselves on camera, so like, yeah, there's a, there is a moment in the book where she's actually watching herself on video. Um, and with the house doing something. I'm not going to give it away, but she has this moment where she's like romanticizing herself because she's now this image on the screen. She's now an actor, but she's also sitting right here. So then that kind of gap comes in. <laughs> Want to take just a couple more questions? Yeah, sure. Questions? Your last chance. <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay. Cool. Thank you all for coming. So oh, we do have a question. What, what again was the name of the best book? 
Oh, the, the quick, quick and the, and the dead. dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, she's yeah, she's wonderful. We also have Joy Williams' Quick and the Dead on hand. Yeah. If you guys want to buy that? Also, please take this time to pick up Stephen and Rachel's book. Um, we're gonna set up a signing table right now, so you guys can come around, make a make a line, and get your books inscribed. And thank you so much for coming. Let's give another round of applause. Cool. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.